0: Well again good morning. And as I begin my sermon I open up my computer. And those of you who know me understand well if I'm at the pulpit and I'm opening my computer it is the culmination of a whole bunch of spiraling uh, calamities have occurred so that I am up here standing in front of a computer which thing I hate. Um, because I will just tap it someplace and it'll go nuts, and and then I'll just kind of slam it down and go. Okay, we'll just we're just going to preach. I uh, I hate preaching off a computer screen, but sometimes that works that way. But for now, let's turn to Luke chapter sixteen, please. Luke chapter sixteen. To get the passage in context, let's go back to verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money... We're listening to all these things and we're scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. That's the commonality with all man-made religion. It is a process by which you're trying to justify yourself in the sight of men. Mostly it's all attention to what would they think with a complete ignorance and Um, lack of any consciousness of what God thinks and so he adds but God knows your hearts for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God verse 16 the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John since that time the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it we spent an interesting Sunday looking at what that meant And last Sunday, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. The word of God is going to be completed and fulfilled precisely as it's spelled out, even down to the forming of the letters. And then we have this one, which seems like a you would say, a non sequitur. Doesn't seem to follow logically, but it does. You knew that. You knew it was going to follow logically. But here it is. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. There. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that, boy, you don't... You don't dodge, you don't duck hard questions or hard subjects. You just ramble right in there and teach. And, and then you solemnly charge your servants, preach the word. And Lord, that's my task today. And Lord, I love preaching your word, um, even the hard places. Help us, Lord, to love the hard places. And Lord, we're going to go on the assumption that everyone here is desirous to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is hear the word, love it, and desire to follow it. And and so, Lord, we're going to go with the assumption that that's who is here, and that's who is under the sound of my voice, But and, and that's how we're going to conduct the service, and yet we know that there are those who... Fight the word. We know that there are those who argue with the word and contend with it. And Lord, I would pray that your spirit this morning would contend with them. Would you, Lord, cause hearts to be amenable and submissive to your word for your glory, we pray, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and now, Lord, as I open up the word, help me to be clear, help me to be helpful, and uh, uh, accurate, so that at the end of the day, disciples know how to please you and are further conformed to the image of Christ. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And my computer has gone blank. Nice. Wake up. There. Okay. Ha, there. Well, we have been working our way through uh, this passage, and uh, what a great passage it is. Um, it started out, of course, where he is um, having this remarkable conversation, first with his own disciples, and then responding to the mocking of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as we saw in this passage, objected to their idol of the love of silver, uh, literally, the love of silver coin. Uh, being exposed, and so rather than deal with that, they mocked. Jesus assures them that the word of God will never fail to unfold. It'll be accomplished just as it's spelled out. And then there is this missile sent, verse 18. How in the world does that fit in the context of the conversation? What does this command mean? Those are the questions we're going to endeavor to apply ourselves to. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on it, meaning more than just this Sunday. Uh, when you tackle a subject this big, uh, which is a you know kind of a little bit running to the end of topical, uh, the danger is oh, but you didn't deal with this. Oh, but you missed this part. on oh, but how about and and admittedly, there's going to be lots of how abouts and what ifs. And there are some rather nasty. Horrible what-ifs running around in the world of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so we're not going to try and tackle all of that today, and I'll I'll just say that off the bat. We're going to tackle the first piece. The first piece. One of the features of doing verse-by-verse exegetical study of the scriptures in a book is that the congregation ends up being exposed to all of the issues The issue of divorce and remarriage has been a hot topic, a topic that generates heat and controversy for centuries, right? Well, now in our day, that isn't quite as hot a topic. The issue of what marriage is, is a topic that could quite literally run a preacher afoul of the law in Canada today. And that's okay. I'm called to preach it. The issue may well be the cause of widespread persecution to descend on our heads in the coming days. But that's our next verse, and so on we go boldly. Well, the statement of Jesus begins with a prohibition, or maybe better put, a declaration about the nature of divorce that imposes prohibitions. This is a very prudent approach with those who are misunderstanding and misrepresenting this very important issue. The full teaching of Jesus and then the supplementary teaching of Paul in 1 Corinthians describes and delineates some rather narrow circumstances under which divorce is permitted. I understand that. We'll be going there, but not today. We'll be going there There are some narrow circumstances under which divorce is permitted, but rather than run to the escape hatch, if you will, first, Jesus starts out with reinforcing the big picture. Marriage was and is intended by God to be permanent, meaning lifelong. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Those of you who are here today and you are married, you made a commitment. You made a covenant. It was a unilateral commitment and a unilateral covenant. It did not say, if this guy does, I will, or if this girl does, well, then I'll do that too. You made a unilateral commitment in front of a group of people before God. And you said, notwithstanding what this individual does, here's what I'm doing. That was the nature of the vow you made. Um, We're going to talk about those vows and what they mean. But your vows are not conditional on the behavior of your spouse. Your vows were made unilaterally. And they were made until the spouse or you die. In other words, the Lord breaks that particular union. Are there some exceptions? Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to that. But you need to know and first dwell on what was marriage, what was intended first. We're going to deal with that before we start busying ourselves with all of the other issues. So before we talk about divorce and remarriage, let's talk about marriage first, shall we? There's a fuller or more complete description of this. This is something that came up frequently within the teaching ministry of Christ, uh, evidently, but there's a fuller statement we find in Matthew chapter 19. So let's turn there for a moment. We're going to come back to Luke 16, but let's, let's look at laying some groundwork that the Lord laid for us. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 1, When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So he's in the Transjordan area, east of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him. So in other words, there's nothing here where they're trying to be, hey, do you know something? This is a keen question, and I really want to know, and I want a biblical answer so that I can apply it. They're, they're doing this in order to trip him up. right? So there's, there's no good motive for this. They're testing him. Asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Is it lawful to divorce a wife for any reason at all? Well, this is a hot-button topic of the day. There was a running debate ongoing that was a frequent source of some heat if it wasn't producing much light. The followers of two prominent rabbis had squared off against each other. We'll talk more about that, but this is introducing it. Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai wrote that divorce divorce was never permissible. Okay? Never permissible. All of them are commenting on a passage we're going to do a deep dive into in Deuteronomy later. They're all commenting on it and at the end of the day Jesus is going to give an authoritative read on what is meant by that. So He's going to clear it up for us. But anyway, they're all squaring off, and and Rabbi Shammai wrote that divorce was never permissible, while Rabbi Hillel, the vastly more popular of the two, wrote that divorce was permissible for the most trivial of reasons. Most trivial. Any reason cited by the husband was deemed permissible as long as he did the paperwork. Do the paperwork, says hello, and everything is fine. And this was the position that was popular, even within religious communities, both with the people and especially it would seem with the Pharisees. This is the one they championed. So much so that actually, in our passage, just to give a sneak peek, go to verse 10, he gives a reading on what that passage meant that Moses wrote in Deuteronomy. And he says, here's what the truth of that is. And in verse 10, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Boy, did they have good marriages, you can tell. They've got the, I'm going to be a bachelor to the rapture you know, down cold, right? They're just, and the and the ones that and the ones that are are married. You go, man, uh, you you don't want a piece of that action. You don't want a piece of that home. Boy, oh boy! I hope that attitude isn't here. I want to bring the searchlight of the Word of God on hearts, so that if it is, it is exposed and repented of. Okay. Anyway. They, they look at the rules and they say, man, if that's the case, it'd be better not to get married. Um, which is a horrible attitude toward marriage and horrible attitude if they're married to their wives. Um, terrible. But anyway, you get an idea that what he's going to teach is something that is not culturally popular. Which is just sort of a way to introduce it. By the time I'm done here... We're going to end up dealing with some issues that you are finding, perhaps, not very culturally comfortable or that you to your liking. And that isn't my task. My task is to tell you what the Word of God says. And so well, that's what we'll endeavor to do. Anyway, so they came along. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? That's the popular position. The Pharisees were trying to push Jesus into a teaching that would make him unpopular with the people because it was pretty obvious by then, he'd already talked about it, it was pretty obvious by then he was holding to a different view than the popular view. And so what he was, they were trying to do is, with this great big crowd, get him to publicly state a position that was unpopular, and thereby lose the popularity competition. That was his point. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So Jesus responds with a biblical answer rather than a politically shrewd answer. Jesus first endeavors to teach the Pharisees and then as well the large crowds what marriage is. And what is intended first before considering divorce, the breaking of a marriage. And so he says in verse 4, what a great starting point. You go, yeah, but this is super simple. This is so important. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Marriage. Marriage is between a male, a biological male, a man, singular, and a female, a biological female, a woman, singular. There are two Genders, period. There are only two genders. Notwithstanding all of the discussions that are going on, and how hateful and how um, small people will end up characterizing that, the truth will set you free. If you are under the sound of my voice and you have been deceived and confused and, and are, are, are wallowing in the, the same quagmire our culture is, wondering, but where do I fit? Because how do I feel? Here's your deliverance. The, the truth will set you free. There are two genders, period. Two and only two. And the gender a person is corresponds to the gender they were created by God. Listen. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Those are the only two categories. And he created them that individually. You have either been created male or female and notwithstanding what you do to yourself, what, notwithstanding what thoughts you have in your head, or what calamities you visit upon your body, that's who you are. And, and that won't change. That won't change. There are two genders. Well... You don't understand, some may object. But this person really feels this way or that way. Or they think this way or that way. Or they have desires this way or that way. You've heard that, right? (coughs) Folks, please listen very carefully. We are all born with fallen, sinful desires we're all born with that and and the argument born that way born that way is irrelevant you were born in sin some of you have a proclivity toward these sins some of you have a proclivity toward the five finger discount right the grab and run sale in hearts you're a thief some of you get angry because of pride. Pride's always the basis of anger. Some of you get very angry, and what that boils out of your heart is murder. Murder. And so what you don't do at that point in time is look and say, and do some sort of deep dive into your own psyche and say, well, I think in my heart, I think really I was I was born with a uh, a, a kind of a proclivity, a, a tendency toward murder, and, and so the only thing I can do to be genuine, the only thing I can do to actually kind of live out my my life with some sort of integrity, is just kill people. Because I mean, that's how I'm born that way, born that way. No, you were put on this world, and you have a sin nature that is in. Diametric opposition to right that naturally, instinctively does what's wrong. And your task is to repent of that sin and bring your life into the conformity of God, whatever your quirk is. You aren't supposed to be trying to run deep diagnostics and and, and try and figure out, okay, so who am I, so therefore I have to be that. As Shakespeare said, to thine own self be true. To thine own self be true? That will end you up in the fires of hell, for the record. Not to your own self be true. To the word of God be submissive. That's the message of the Bible. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And contrary to what some might say, as I say this, I'm being hateful as I say this, I'm I'm not understanding. It is completely understanding. And as truth, it will set you free. The truth will set you free. Decide. That your own instinct, that your own innate grasp of truth and righteousness is wrong. And God is right. Your gender in the eyes of God corresponds to the gender of assignment as created by God. At birth... We are afflicted with sinful, confusing, rebellious thinking that further confuses our feelings. All of this we need God to deliver us from, not confirm us in. And the God who loves you is intent on delivering you from that, not confirming you in that. Okay, going on. What is marriage? Well, Marriage has been defined a whole bunch of ways in our culture today. But I will point out that marriage is a moral construct. And as such, God has the authority to define how that institution is to be conducted, by whom, and what is to be recognized. It is marriage if it falls within the parameters defined by God. That's what marriage is. Let me give you an example. If, for example, for the sake of argument, you call a dog's tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? Four. Because calling it a leg doesn't make it a leg. Right? Calling it marriage doesn't make it marriage. So, marriage is a moral construct. He has the authority to define what is to, how it's to be conducted, how you are supposed to be conducting yourself within your marriage, and what is to be recognized. If you are listening to the sound of my voice today, and it has been produced in your heart to desire to please God within the estate of marriage, the first category of consideration is that a God-pleasing, God-affirming marriage for you would be as a starting point with someone who is of the opposite gender of you of the two existing biological genders. That's the start. If, on the other hand, you have no intention of a reflex-submitting of your will to the will of God. I'm actually not going to engage you in your preferences in marriage because we're not going to talk about marriage. We're not going to talk about any of that because you first, if you're going to have any access to God, any access to truth, you must first come to God repenting of wrong desires, wrong thinking, and even wrong feeling. Did you hear me say, yeah, you need to repent of wrong feelings. Because feelings spring out of your heart and your heart is the, the cesspool, your, your, your thinking, your mind is what is producing all of those feelings. It produces the grid. And all of that you're responsible for. So you need to repent of wrong desires, wrong thinking, and wrong, even wrong feelings. And be willing to do what he says says as he says, on his terms, not yours. Some will immediately conclude that I said this because I fear them. Or I hate them. And all I can say is that's simply not the truth. I do not fear you if you're listening to me and and you're taking exception to this and and I don't hate you. I have more to say about this in a previous sermon that I would, you can look up online and I would give you every encouragement to do so where I deal with the entire question. It's from January 16th of 2022. I would ask you to please uh, avail yourself of that. That's all we're going to say on that particular issue today. If you have questions, though, please come and talk. I would love to talk about that. So, as Jesus teaches... Two genders, for example, as created by God, two people of the opposite gender, two people, not three or four people, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve and and Wilhelmina and Gertrude, and it, two people, constituted a marriage, male singular and female singular. And somebody is going to say, yeah, but the scriptures also talk about uh, polygamy having more than one wife. And we're going to talk about that too. There's actually verses that describe how that is not God's favor, and, and, and that was something that was condemned in the Word of God. Again, what's going on there is a is a lack of obedience and a lack of understanding. More to come. Anyway, so, verse 5. And for this reason, I'm in Matthew 19, by the way, and for this reason, reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh he said god said that god wrote that so first of all leaves the man is supposed to leave and, and quite deliberately the majority the actually the only one that is referenced here with respect to this particular responsibility is the man. Men, you need to initiate and lead in this. This is the disbanding of that original social unit and that social condition. As much as those who are very kind of sentimental about the mother son relationship and the mother daughter relationship and all of that, God intend the God intended condition and duration of the parent child relationship is temporary that one is temporary marriage is to be designed to be as permanent as the lives of the ones who are involved in it Mar- the the child parent relationship is temporary the authority relationship ends when a new permanent relationship replaces it, that of marriage producing a new social unit. The husband then cleaves to, an interesting word there in the Hebrew, is continually glued to his wife. Continually glued to his wife. This is what was said of Adam and Eve while they were still in innocence in the garden. This is when marriage is functioning without sin, within, without any of the, the things that would interrupt a good relationship. He still says, you need to cleave. Leave? Cleave. As a pastor, most often when I'm doing marriage counseling, There will be, very, very simply, if there's a marriage problem, it will be a failure, frequently of the husband, I'm going to say, because you're on the hot seat today, gentlemen. Frequently of the husband, a failure to leave and cleave. You chart the course, gentlemen. So leave and cleave is what was said of Adam and Eve while still in innocence in the garden. This is not the expression of some sort of a penal sentence or a hardship that's being imposed. It is the description of the relationship that results in blessing. Marriage was one of the chief apex blessings of the garden, it was a blessing granted. Let's go back for a minute, if we could, to Genesis chapter 2 and revisit that. Genesis chapter 2. Start in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Why did he have to cultivate and keep it? Like, was, were there a bunch of weeds growing? No, there were no weeds growing, nothing bad happening. But there's the idea that there is this vibrant, zealous, bouncy creation, exuberant growth, and it, and it needed to have some management. And that even in a perfect environment. And that was what was mankind, mankind was called upon to do. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, "...from any tree of the garden you may eat freely." But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. After a whole string of, and he looked on everything he made, and it was good, and he looked on everything he made, and it was good, here's the first time he said, this is something that's not good. And by that he's not saying, this is something created defectively, He's saying this is something that is created. It's created in its course. It's created as it's supposed to be. But it is deliberately created to only function in its best way with something else. It needs, the guy needs some help. Gentlemen, we could talk about grooming. We could talk about manners. We could talk about your diet. We could talk about a whole bunch of things. But when we get all done, gentlemen, let me help you with this. You need help. You you need help. You need a helper. And if you don't believe that, ask my wife. Okay, so here it is. He says... I will make him a helper suitable for him. Something that corresponds, literally, something that is specifically custom-built for the needs that were deliberately created in Adam. I'm going to build somebody like that. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see What he would call them. This is a big mouthful. What he's doing here is actually a fairly complex scientific thing. He's calling on Adam, who had a very big brain, who didn't have the limitations of our brain, and he's bringing the animals to them and engaging in something that we would call in science taxonomy. And and the idea of of figuring out what in the world, how these animals relate to each other and, and where they fit. He brought them to him and see what he would call them, and whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. All of that was to reinforce the idea I'm putting you in charge of. Why in the world did Adam need help? Was Adam in some sort of a physical danger and he needed this ninja like woman to have his back and be, you know, kicking back the snakes? No. Adam was not in any physical danger. And as hard as it is for us to understand, Adam was going to grow old, and that was not a problem. As he grew old, before the sin entered the world, he was not subject to entropy, where he was winding down like some of us, are becoming more and more aware that we are. So he was not in physical danger. It was not a situation that he's going to all of a sudden grow old with no one to replace him when he got old because he can't quite get at the work anymore. If Adam had not sinned, he'd have been 4,000 old and he'd have beat you in an arm wrestle. And, and, if, and if you were shoveling grain, he'd have whooped you at it. He he didn't have the limitations we do. He was not subject to the curse of entropy, of decay, of disease, or the onset of age-related infirmities. I say as I try and figure out how to aim my bifocals so that it's in its (laughs) bullseye point. He would have lived forever in a perfect garden with work to do that was very suited to him. There was no weeding or thorns or bad animals or insects biting him that he needed to swat. But there was the organization and the exercising of authority and managing the entirety of creation that was about to expand exponentially, which was a huge task. So Adam needed a suitable helper, God said. God created him knowing that he needed a helper. God created him with the anticipation that there were some deficiencies that could only be addressed by the helper. Okay? So, gentlemen, understand, begin thinking of your wife in those sorts of contexts. So... Adam needed help to accomplish what God was calling him to do. When Adam was doing the complex job of taxonomy and classification, something became very apparent to Adam. And that's why God was doing this job at this point. Brings all the animals and 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 God is doing this so that all of a sudden the, you know, the the onboard computer of Adam goes, "Hey, I noticed something." Right? Adam was smart enough to realize that there was not another of the opposite gender in existence yet. Male, female, lion. Male, female, bear. Male, female, elk. There's only one of me. And he knew that as a race, they were incomplete. And God was doing that to reinforce that, that he would understand that from that particular exercise so there was no one of the opposite gender in existence yet so there would be no multiplication for him like there would be for the other animals there was no one like him in intellect in emotion and thought there were no other creatures made in the image of god that's man only there's what do we mean by the image of god well it includes not only but it includes self-awareness and created to directly communicate and commune with God, worship. In at least these areas, he was alone in the created order. Adam, according to God, needed a companion, not a carbon copy, a helper appropriate to him for companionship, for help, and for the multiplication of the human race. He needed someone who would complete him, make up for the innate shortcomings the perfect man was perfectly created with. A need for a helper was factored in, baked into the creation of this (coughs) unflawed, unsinful man. One of the great reasons... God has provided as a blessing and as a joy this thing called marriage is for the purpose of and I can tell you right now there are some of you who think sex. What all of us should be thinking is companionship. Companionship. You go, companionship? I don't have companionship with a, with a girl. I want to go out and bonk a an elk over the head with a club. I want to go out and all of these. And, and you don't want to take a woman. No, actually, the whole purpose, the highest thing in the created order in terms of relationships was a marriage between a man and a woman, and the companionship that would come, and the camaraderie that would come out of that. Companionship. The sexual relationship flows out of the depth of the companionship relationship. Eve was to be Adam's closest companion, friend, partner in the work that the Lord has assigned them. Okay, time for a diagnostic question. Would your wife, gentlemen, would your wife immediately recognize that you think of her that way because you treat her that way constantly? Your mind may have wandered because you're still bonking an elk on the head. I'm going to say it again. Would your wife immediately recognize you think of her that way because you treat her that way? That's your custom. That, that is who you are. That's your DNA. That's your M.O. Is she your closest human companion and friend? Gentlemen. That won't happen without you as the initiator, the leader, cultivating it very consistently and deliberately because God tells you to do it. Wives. Oh, you knew that was coming, right? Just a little bit of an insight here. By the time we finish the sermon, I'm mostly going to be going after the, the guys, okay? Lucky you. But, I mean, lucky you, gentlemen. But, uh, wives, would your husband immediately recognize that you think of him as the one God has picked out for you to be a faithful companion? and helper of in the work God has given you two to do because you treat and respond to him that way? Or is there friction? Or is there competition? Or is there jockeying for position? So, ladies and gentlemen, mostly I'm dealing with husbands and wives today. Husbands and wives do you order your lives that way deliberately out of the fear of God do you order your thinking that way? what a great passage Peter refers to when he's talking about the 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 response of the wife to the husband and she and he uses that little phrase even as Sarah called Abraham Lord and you go What's that all about? Well, look it up in your concordance or something. There's only one time in scripture where it refers to Sarah calling Abraham Lord. And she didn't even say it out loud. She said it quietly to herself and God heard it. There was a promise that she was that the two of them were going to produce a child. And she says in her heart, not out loud, in her head, what, is my Lord going to receive joy at his age? You go, so what's the point of that? Sarah was so practiced, it was such, so built into her, the idea that she needed to submit, as God set up, that when she's even thinking the internal sentences in her head she's thinking in terms of abraham as being lord it's just it's just part of her thinking without without being deliberate about it and and and, and without being politically you know trying to say the right thing at the right time it's just it's it's how she has done her thinking so it just kind of pops out and and That's the right attitude, because that's the right long-term practice. Anyway, do you order your thinking that way, gentlemen, ladies? Your life together will reveal what you really believe about your wife or your husband over what is formed over time. You will reap what you sow. Well... We're back in Genesis 2. He says, The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. He's got the point. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Why would he, God do it that way? He can speak the entire world into existence. He can just speak it and boom, it's there. Why would he go to the trouble? Well, we know there's obviously something emblematic. There's something symbolic. There's something that he's doing this for a reason. Okay, so he could have just, like he did with Adam, form Adam from the ground and say, boom, here's Eve. But he didn't. He took a piece of Adam, and he formed Eve out of that. What's going on there? What's happening there? The two become one flesh. That's a far deeper than, well, they're on the same side, they're on the same team. They're one flesh. They were one flesh emotionally, volitionally, philosophically, intent on bringing glory to God by doing his bidding. Physical love either flows out of the fullness of that, or physical love is strangled by the lack of that kind of companionship. Well, he fashioned into a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man, brought it to her. He gets it. Adam gets it. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Eve is formed in a way that God very emblematically included some of the very stuff of Adam to emphasize one flesh And an antecedence. She came from, physically, him. She literally came from Adam for Adam. And Adam got the point immediately. She's of the same makeup, of the same substance as me. And wonderfully, it includes, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. Why is that in the future tense? Because they didn't have to leave, father and mother. But marriage is being given as a blessing in the garden, and it anticipates that every other relationship, marriage relationship, from here on in will require the leaving and cleaving. And so it's in the future tense. For this reason, marriage, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the intent of God in marriage. That's the intent. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So there was no nagging sin, guilt, conscience, wounding, any of that stuff. Okay, so let's go back to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. Jesus quotes that. And he gives his commentary, verse 6. So they are no longer two but one flesh. He's emphasizing that. How how do you divide something that is one flesh? I I get a kick out of I like you can tell I like kids, I like kids, I like looking at their little visiognomies, their little faces, and I I look at them and I go, huh, you know I I, I see I see a, a little Aston Martin here, um, the little sports car, and I look at the little face and I go. You know, I can see George in there. And I look a little bit and I go, yeah, you know, and I can see Tina in there. You, you can see both of the parents in there. How in the world would you take the George and separate it from the Tina in little Aston Martin there? You can't do it. And that's the whole point of one flesh. that That's the great picture is that It's supposed to be, it's intended to be permanent and non divisible, right? So, he says, they're no longer two but one flesh. And now, boy, this is theologically thick, intense, important, deep. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Who knows how to run a computer? I think the computer is subject to the fall. So, verse 6, who's he talking about? They shall be, uh, they are no longer two but one flesh. Who's the they? What's the antecedent of they? Adam and Eve? Husbands and wives all over the place. Husbands and wives since the dawn of time. They are no longer two but one flesh. And who's he talking about then with this idea of what therefore God has joined together. Every marriage that has occurred in human history. Do you understand that? This is this is not um, some sort of a, a debatable thing. God is claiming, if those two people are married, I did it. I joined them together. And you go, well... But how about people who get married from other religions, okay? So if, if you were coming from an East Indian background, you would have tied the knot, right? So you're standing up in front of the official, the officiant, and at one particular part in the, 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 the whole ceremony, your toga and, and the other person's toga are tied in a knot, and together you step over the knot. You've tied the knot, Okay? That's how they do it there. Not every religion, not every uh, group, they they walk up the aisle in in a white gown. You know that. But there are some commonalities in marriage, regardless of the culture. There's always a distinction between what, for example, the Cree would call a nikimus, the girlfriend, and a wife, and, and, and in every culture, there's a difference between somebody who is a convenience and someone that you are committed to. They understand the difference. And even in places where they get a lot of the stuff wrong, God is still the definer of what marriage is supposed to be. And he's saying, if these two people are married, I joined them together. This is an interesting concept. Every marriage since, there are no longer two but one, what God has joined together. In each and every marriage, God makes claim to joining them together. And you say, but hang, hang on, Billy and Mary don't believe in God, don't trust God, don't follow God, or obey God. Doesn't matter. Did they get married? God is laying claim to the idea I put them together. And guess what? The offspring that came out of that was fully planned for by God. Fully planned. There are no accidents. Not in the sovereignty of God. If life has transpired that they find themselves married as God defines marriage, he has joined them together. If you find yourself today in the state of marriage, you are married to someone as the Bible defines marriage. God put that together. I hope that's a reassurance to you. God put that together. You say, but hang on, but we were married before we became Christians. Doesn't matter. God put you together. If you manage to make it to the point of marriage where you left your father and mother and were publicly declared as man and wife, having exchanged vows that made certain to everyone you were both aware of what you were doing, and you were not somehow biblically disqualified from marriage at the time God put you together. And folks, I start with that assumption every time when I'm doing marriage counseling. And I start with that assumption because that's what the scripture says. Even if I look over the situation, and in truth, sometimes I do, and I wonder, how in the world did these two get together, and what were they thinking? I affirm mentally, God joined them together. How do you know that God put your marriage together, meaning God specifically chose this one you're married to for you? Here's the answer to that. Your spouse did not perish by a meteorite bashing the car of your spouse on the way to the altar. In his sovereignty, God permitted it to happen even if relatives objected. Even if grandma pleaded, please, no. Even if you say, but I married them before I knew this about them. Even if the efficient look, the efficient, the efficient, the guy who did the I declare you even if he looked a little bit like Elvis doesn't matter if you're married and you got to that point God did it some have been tormented with the thought of you know back then I made a mistake I should have married X I've known that all along no Who did God allow to marry you? Well, what God has joined together. Beautiful theology. Your decision to marry could have been motivated by sinful rebellion or lust or envy or jealousy or ignorance, it could have been a step of known disobedience. But please understand, God has joined you together. And it was, and it is intended still, as a blessing. As a wonderful, rich, correcting, refining, helping, teaching blessing for you. That is who God has chosen all along to help you, or for you to help to complete you, to develop the deepest level of companionship with on this earth in this lifetime. If in God's providence you were permitted to get to the altar, rejoice. You married the right one. Or you married the one that God all along knew he was going to be dealing with. And that he was going to be working some very specific, very gracious things out of. So, if in God's providence you were permitted to get to the altar, you married the right one. That's a great start this morning. You might have relatives or friends telling you you should rather be married to this one. No, but God has joined together. You never need to fuss about that again. Now for the overwhelming majority of those in the sound of my voice, if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, get to work on the companionship and self-sacrificing service God intended and make that marriage blossom. At this point... Some of you are thinking in your head, but we live in a fallen world marred by sin where marriage is between two often selfish, heartless, rebellious sinners. I know that. Sadly, I see more of that than I ever, ever thought I would as I became a preacher 30 some years ago. I know that. And there is much yet to say that I have left unsaid. I've not dealt with all the accept clauses and what to do with spiritually mixed marriages and with those who are not married, but wish to be. I know all that. But one step at a time, folks. And here's the first step. When the Pharisees came and asked if they could get divorced for any reason, the Hellil Doctrine if you will. Jesus knew something was needed before we go there. Before we can get into how and when to dismantle a marriage, we need this morning to be reminded of what a marriage can be, what it is and was designed to be, and what it can be still. The Pharisees had no functioning notion of companionship as the goal of marriage. Uh, they would have not asked the question, hey, can we divorce her for any reason? If you had that level of companionship with your wife, why would you even ask that? The young men that were the disciples of Jesus who responded with that classic statement, well, that's the way it is with marriage. It's better for men never to marry. You can understand something right off the bat with them, too. They didn't understand God's purpose and the wonderful potential for marriage, even in a fallen world. And they did not understand what God has joined together. What... Oh, we need to do the last part of that phrase. What God has joined together... Let's give. I'll give you an expanded translation of it so you have the verb tenses. What God has joined together... Stop this present business of men separating. That's a great commentary on the culture where it is, hey, divorce for any reason, just get the paperwork done. He says to that mindset, he says to that culture, and he says to our culture, stop this present business of separating what God has joined together. So before we talk about marriage, divorce and remarriage, we need to know that about marriage. You say, But but we, we're gonna walk out of here with an incomplete view. Yeah, I know. But we need that view. There's some very painful but what ifs out there. And over the coming days Lord willing we'll endeavor to deal with them thoroughly. But for now I'm going to deal with the guys. Husbands love your wives. Actually you're given two commands. In every most every marriage I've ever done, I I include those words from Ephesians, husbands, love your wives, agape, which is the idea of you choose to be loving toward them regardless of their response to you. It's a love of choice. But there's also places where it says, husbands, phileo your wives. Be in a position where you actually admire them, are attracted to them, Allow yourself to be in a situation where you go, Do you know something? I like that person. And that's an act, if it's a command, you can do. Amen? 1 Peter chapter 3. I've got some little kids going, amen, amen. Preach it preach it. There you go. First Peter chapter 3 talks about it. Wives, be submit. We're going to skip that. You go, whoa, did you, did you know that that? Yeah, I know those verses are there. We're going to start in verse 7. I'm going to, I'm going to focus on you guys. Lucky you. <laughs> Wonderful. You, you guys came to church trying to figure out what the will of God is for your life, right? Lucky you. you we're going to deal with you first. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives. The live with there, living together with, includes physical intimacy. Did you know that that was tucked into the word? Live with your wives. It's the idea of a companion, a deep companionship with your wives, in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Dwell with her in an understanding away. Gentlemen, take time and effort to figure these gals out, rather than throwing up your hands or throwing in the towel. Yeah, they're different. They they they're not just a guy friend who looks cute in a skirt. That that's not who they are. They're different. They are different. And they're different like you need, gentlemen. So live with them in an understanding way. Take some time to figure them out. And by the way, remember 1 Corinthians 13, love never quits. Love doesn't give up. Love doesn't say, oh, well, give that a try. Solomon counseled, be continually captivated by her. Allow yourself to be continually attracted to her. Be satisfied because God has put her into your life. Give honor to her as a weaker vessel. Be chivalrous toward her. She is, in Peter's words, a fellow heir of the grace. He's not talking about the grace of salvation here. It is a gift, but this is the grace of life. This is a special gift God gives. Not everybody, I understand, but this is a special gift God gives to some that is one of the apex, one of the finest relationships you will ever experience on this earth. In the flesh. The marriage relationship. And you go, but the marriage relationship is one of the most horrible, you might be thinking, one of the most problematic, one of the most troubled relationships in my life. I know for some of you, that's true. But it doesn't have to be that way. And, and, and some of it, not all of it, because I know there are accept clauses, but some of it has to do with your mindset and how you are each conducting yourselves within the marriage. Be chivalrous toward her. She's a fellow heir of the grace, the greatest gift... God has given in common grace to mankind the grace of life. How do I start? Get up in the morning, die to self, snap into line as the slave to your master. And as you yield, Romans chapter 6, God will give you the power to obey As you yield to the Holy Spirit, he will give you the fruit of the Spirit, one of which looks like self-control, one of which looks like faithfulness. Get up in the morning and die to self. Reaffirm Jesus as your master. And God will give you the power and the will to do that. Are we done with the subject? Yeah, I know. We're not done with it. But we all needed to hear that. That is what God intended for marriage. And actually, folks, that is what God can produce in your life, even yet. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reminder. For those of us who are married Thank you for what you have done in our life and the means of grace and the means of sanctification that that wife is, that that spouse is. For those who are here and they are not married and they wish to, you've spoken to that too. And, and there are temporary gifts potentially temporary gifts that may well turn out to be permanent gifts, but, but for each, you are individually involved in giving something special to your children. To start out with, Lord, grant us the faith and the constancy and the courage to accept that as true Recalibrate our thinking and proceed in a way that will bring honor and glory to you. If there are some here, Lord, in the power and the sound of my voice that are struggling, I would pray, Lord, if they do not know you as their Lord and Savior, would you download new life into them, even at this moment as they realize? They need a Savior. They need to be saved. If there are some in the sound of my voice who realize they are failing at this and it's an issue of disobedience, would you, Lord, grant them full and complete repentance and then the power to walk as you'd have them walk. And we commit these requests and ourselves afresh into your hands in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless.